Today on the show, we talked to Mark Dostert about his memoir recounting his time as an attendant in a juvenile corrections facility in Chicago. He discusses the merits of jailing kids with outmoded and punitive drug laws, as well as the slippery slope of choosing the right color white for your juvenile detention center. So to that, we could say effing Shakespeare, because all the names have been taken exactly. by Shakespeare. Exactly. Right. That's exactly. Yeah, that's true. David, being the curmudgeon that he is, insisted that you actually read the novel to be a part of the book club. So slowly but surely, people dropped off. <laughs> is that really how you met Sue? That's, I think that's part of the story. However it happens, you know, it takes a village. It takes a village to write a book. I want to tell you that I was the TA for Anthony Swafford at UC Davis. While, like, he was probably writing the first draft of Jarhead. He'd just come back from, from the, the Gulf. It was what I was, I was one of his TAs. These are things I didn't know about you, Jessica. You know, when you're turning the pen on yourself... Right. Uh, it's you're really not just confessing. Trying to but, figure ourselves. Out. Yeah, right. you're examining. You're examining yourself. You're holding yourself up to, up to, you know, up to the light. Oh, there's no buzz now, right? No. Right. You don't hear any buzz. Okay. No, I don't. Just the buzz of our beating hearts. <laughs> so uh, let me ask. Feels <laughs> like I have no time for this. <laughs> <laughs> let, let me. <laughs> We have standards. Oh, my word. I'm drinking tea this morning. <laughs> oh, my God. I need a second cup of coffee now. I'm going to, I am going to get my coffee, but I'm on a bed, so there's no hard surface. <laughs> I try, I'll try not to. Oh, God. Jessica's oh God. podcasting. Is on a, from oh are you on, like, your belly? <laughs> and you're twirling your hair? What do you do? She, oh, food. She's a 15-year-old girl. She's definitely that. twirling her hair. <laughs> definitely. I'm Kate Martin-Williams. I'm Jessica Cole. And this is Effing Shakespeare. By writers, for writers. Mark Dossert is the author of Up and Here, Jailing Kids on Chicago's Other Side. He's been published in Ascent, The Cimarron Review, The Dallas Morning News, The Houston Chronicle, and cited as a notable in the Best American Non-Required Reading and the Best American Essays. His first fiction publication, Rocks, July 1994, is due out on July 1st, just a few days from now in Green Hills Literary Lantern. He currently teaches at Houston ISD's Maryland Middle School for the Performing and Visual Arts and at Wrightspace Houston, including an upcoming four-session workshop on memoir and personal essay beginning in late August. Utterly unprepared for the Hobbesian world he encounters at Chicago's juvenile jail, Mark Dossert soon realizes that any hesitation or uncertainty on his part could let all hell break loose. Up in here is the ruthlessly honest and touching story of his struggles to become the essential male authority that he needs to keep himself and the boys safe. Repeatedly, he fails. With admirable candor, he details the humiliations he suffers. Where is this elusive manhood? In the end, mysteriously and with some triumph, he begins to find it. From Emily Fox Gordon, author of Mockingbird Years, A Life in and Out of Therapy, well, Mark Dostert, welcome to the podcast. It's a pleasure having you here. Well, thank you, Jessica and Kate, for having me. Jessica, Mark brought in a couple of uh, 
photos of the Audi home and you can't see them, but it's this sort of 1970s, uh, it, it really looks like an office building. It's very nondescript. There's some, you know, maturing oak trees on the front of a simple street and it has a, about five windows in each block stacked four blocks high and maybe three blocks wide. Mark said to me, there's a, a cell in every window, a kid in every window. Yeah, it's really, it, it's really deceptive. <laughs> you don't, it doesn't say jail. Maybe you can just tell us how you ended up at the Audi home. Yes, you're, you're right. The, the pictures of the, of the jail are quite deceiving. It, it is this austere, modern, sleek-looking building, and yet behind each one of those little rectangles is a kid. And another note of, of irony is that when, when I went there as a volunteer, uh, the picture you're seeing, it is a bright snow-white color. And it was, re it used to be a very, well, the guys who, who I've talked with, uh, talked about it with, uh, to me, it looked black. They said it was a very, very dark brown. Mm -hmm. uh, but e either way, it used to be from the early 70s until the early 90s, it was very dark on the outside, dark brown or black. And when I was in the process of interviewing for the job, someone uh, said, Oh yeah, they did. The county didn't want a quote black jail full of black kids, mm -hmm. so they painted it white. Wow! And so that was quite, quite astonishing and and intriguing. Um, that they would invest some money in the outside, and yet you write in. I can't remember what chapter, but about the the chairs that mm -hmm. they they had a mishmash of chairs and. Remind me, they wanted to try to get all, or you exactly. thought it would be better if they all yes, had the same exactly. kind of chairs that yes. were. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there was one cell block that had these rubber chairs that were much safer. They couldn't, even if they were thrown, they're not going to smash a window. They're not going to cut into someone. Mm -hmm. um, and and all, their other all the other cell blocks had these fiberglass chairs that just had these razor edges. And they would, you know, if they hit you in the shoulder, they're... Uh, it would slice you to the bone, and, and that happened. And then they broke glass partitions, you know, the, the glass wall that separates the television area from the common area. Mm -hmm. And so the thought was, why in the world do we not have these seemingly $5 rubber Target Walmart chairs on every cell block? Mm -hmm. um, and I'm sure that we all would have said, let's just leave the outside whatever color and invest in more of these safe chairs. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, the bu the building is just full of those types of contradictions and quandaries and and mysteries and, and tragedies, mm. uh, all of which I was very clueless to when I went there as a volunteer, as a senior, as an undergraduate senior. And so as, as you alluded to in the in the intro, I was a volunteer counselor there one night a week during my senior year uh, and it was called uh, Good News Jail and Prison Ministries and uh, it was led by a man named Chaplain Rick who wore these very big dark uh, glasses. Uh, he had had some form of cancer that had left him blind 
And so he would lead us onto the elevators and tell us which, which floors to step off on and which blocks to go to solicit volunteers to, to come with us. So, but it was a very positive experience. That was my, my senior year. And, uh, another guy on my dorm floor had done the same program, uh, earlier and I'd always heard uh, very positive things from him and I had actually met one of the kids that he had met there and he was now released and uh, his name was uh, Apollo and and the kid's name was Junior. They both spoke Spanish and he would uh, pick Junior up or Junior would come to campus and, and Apollo would take him out and and it was just something that I really admired and so when it came to my senior year, I requested that I have be assigned that that volunteer assignment. So, and at this point in your career, you were thinking, what direction was your life going at I, that point? I wasn't exactly sure. I was interested in in many things, so I, I wasn't I wasn't fully sure. I didn't have everything mapped out, mm-hmm. but I, I knew that I wanted to earn a graduate degree of some sort. I ended up studying history at University of North Texas wrote my thesis on a subject that uh, had come up during my undergraduate years. and But by the end of it, I knew that I was not PhD material, and I was ready to go back to the real world, work with people. This was right about the time of the digital revolution and newspapers having websites and and as you know, as they say, distance makes the heart grow fonder. And so I was here in Texas surfing the Chicago Tribune website, and all <laughs> of a sudden I see that the Cook County Juvenile Temporary Detention Center is hiring, quote, children's attendants. And so I clicked on that and started reading, and I was nearing the end of my thesis, and I applied for the job. Very unaware of what, of what the, the job title would be. Even though when I read it, now when I read it, I see that, that it is embedded in there, unarmed jail guard. <laughs> but I just thought, silly me at age 26, I thought <laughs> that it would have been called juvenile detention officer. And that, in fact, was an, a yet another complaint of the guys up there, that why are we not certified? Why do we not have uniforms? Why do we not have badges? Why are we not called juvenile detention officer like this position is in so many other states? Mm-hmm. And so naive me, I had somehow envisioned this children's attendant as being a liaison between the inmates and then the real guards, you know, who would be lurking off in the distance in case anything, <laughs> yeah, and, and, you know, for when things really went down. And then the first week on the job there, uh, a guy pulled me aside and he said, hey, all you have is your mouth. I wonder if you could read maybe a little bit to give us a taste, maybe from from 89, where you talk about traversing Chicago and in, into the Audi home into work. I, at this point, you're early on in your uh, first couple of weeks, staff. Sure, sure. From my apartment parking lot. I turned north onto Brainerd Avenue and cruised past well-kept Georgian and ranch-style homes, bright flower beds nestled into their tidy yards, also close as a forest preserve, and picnic table clearings where families barbecue on weekends. Even with new luxury condos overlooking the village center, LaGrange is unmistakably suburban and simulates where I grew up quiet, each household owning more than one motorized vehicle, few dark faces, and a lot of children playing soccer and riding bikes to school. In a way, I did grow up here, 
It's ironic now that my dad's family migrated to LaGrange from Chicago's Kelvin Park precinct 50 years ago. I limited my apartment search to certain suburbs because of the high safety to affordability ratio. Residing as well in this protected enclave, I too never fret about gangbangers shooting out my streetlights or not being able to shop for groceries because I can't afford a car and taxi drivers have boycotted my blighted block. A mile up Brainerd, the eastbound Burlington Northern Santa Fe commuter train will stop one street over at Stone Avenue, halfway along the train's hour-and-a-half journey from far-flung Aurora to Union Station in Chicago's downtown loop. From day shift training and the 8-4 to disaster on 4K, I remember the weekday morning passengers in their slacks and ties, skirts and jackets, clutching steaming paper cups of Joe, many clad in Reeboks for a hike to an office somewhere in the skyscraper labyrinth, stepping into the train like automatons. But my train today, the 1 p.m. pickup, elicits skateboarding teens lured by Lake Michigan's rustic seawall and families bound for Grant Park, the Museum of Science and Industry, and seasonal slews of neighborhood festivals. My jeans and solid t-shirt render me one of those leisurely travelers. Yet once in Chicago, our agendas will diverge. I doubt a single other commuter here is aware that half of Audi home inmates were born to teen mothers. My fellow suburbanites have never heard of the four-corner hustlers either. They know nothing about hypes and tech nines. So this, uh, there are, as you mentioned, I'm early in the, in the tenure there and things are very up and down. And I had worked, I had been sent to a unit on the fourth floor and things did not go well, to say the least, uh, despite my initially thinking that things would be okay based on the appearance of my coworker and, you know, and it, and it didn't. So that was just some, you know, that incident, it's like, you're only as good as your most recent day. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then yet <laughs> the, the meltdowns, the, the failures are always with you. Even if you've, you've had a smooth day, a decent day, a day where you felt that you've quote won, it's always in the back of your mind. Mm-hmm. And so that, you know, that, that train ride in was often a time for a slow, a slow a replay video of, of highlights, of lowlights, and then stepping off the train and hiking about a mile north on, on, on Western Avenue and then coming across, coming up to the jail and saying, all right, what's it going to be today? It's interesting to when I heard about Mark's bedside table, that he's, um, you know, reading a book about someone who grew up in a, you know, a middle-class black neighborhood in Chicago that seems historically to have been or has been for, for many years. Yes, that right, indeed, indeed. So to know that that exists, I don't think there are, I, I can't tell you right now that there is a neighborhood like that in Boston. There's attempts at integration and... There's certainly middle-class families where I live right now of many POCs and everyone lives together and it seems like a very blissful environment and it is. But I can't mm-hmm. say that there's a neighborhood with that kind of history and it makes me sad. Even yeah, it's, it's actually there. the neighborhood where Michelle Robinson, now Michelle Obama, grew I up. I was just going to ask. Yeah, exactly. Actually. Yeah. 
I sort of assumed, mm-hmm. but then I thought, no, I should yeah. probably ask. Yeah. <laughs> and Miss Moore really writes well about how the housing crisis affected it more adversely than other middle class neighborhoods. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's it's a fascinating it book. Less of a less of a mm-hmm. net. Um, yeah, it's it's I mean it's it's so interesting too. I mean that 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 bus ride, that train ride in um, brings up so much, but it does remind me, first of all all you have is your mouth and which is really all any of us have unless we are guards or officers or um and and how powerful that can be but yet how vulnerable we are that's especially in your in your position but how you know you as a as a children's attendant we're constantly sizing up the the kids and the other attendants and who looks mm-hmm. strong who look like they could back you up meaning, you know, a co-worker who had, even if he didn't have the same kind of physical strength that one would so desire in that situation, someone like Edison, who just had that supreme calmness. But in some ways, you were colorblind the whole time, because even though the kids were every shade of brown and black, and the attendants, it seems, were mostly that as well, it you were one of the few white attendants, yes. right? It seems more about like physicality at that point versus color, which then again then goes back to the color of the building and how how surreal basically all of that is. But I was struck again and again not so much by the color differentiation between you and the other. It was more about Who's going to back me up? Not the guy with, with the flabby stomach going to be able to move quickly enough and that, and that making me feel more afraid. Is that how it was or am I missing some stronger, more specifically racial overtones that you felt every day as an attendant? Everything you said there was absolutely... That light bulb that you mentioned didn't go on right away because I guess initially they paired me with very strong attendants. You know, they're wanting you to see the best. They're being optimistic that, okay, if we put this new person with a really strong person, maybe this new person will turn out to be a likewise strong person. Mm -hmm. And so, but then eventually when I began to see other attendants who were not from the Texas suburbs and were not white Caucasian, when I began to see them struggle too, some of them, then yes, it began to Mm -hmm. dawn on me that ultimately it is your mouth. It is your mindset. It is your attitude. Mm -hmm. It is, do you know how to checkmate them into the behavior that you're wanting? And you could be five, seven, one sixty, and pull it off. You could be six, four, 280 and not pull it off. And so that, that was, that was encouraging, but yet I knew that there were obstacles, challenges that I was facing that I felt that, uh, many of my coworkers were not facing. When you walk Mm -hmm. onto a cell block and you hear a murmur, you know, oh man, a white dude, or you're called white expletive because a kid doesn't, uh, agree with the, the direction that, you know, that you've given him. Then you, you, or who doesn't want to follow your orders because you are somehow responsible for exactly, slavery. yeah, and, and that, <laughs> yeah, and that was uh, that was all part of 
of some really tough truths that I had to wrestle with mm-hmm. uh, to realize that it's not just about good intentions and it's not mm-hmm. just about, well, the slavery and legal segregation are over and, and we're just going to deal with each other as, as human beings. And it's far more complicated than that is what this, this experience really told me. I was so naive to think that these boys, many of them, most of them would give me the benefit of the doubt. I mm-hmm. assumed that they would assume goodwill. I had to really admit to myself that I don't know as much about the intersection of suburban, Caucasian, middle-classness with at-risk urban youth culture. Mm-hmm. And I have to credit my coworkers because they, they warned me. They told me right away mm-hmm. and subconsciously I wasn't believing them, but, but very quickly I did. As an outsider reading the book, I was struck by this parallel vulnerability that as the attendant, you were vulnerable to uprisings, right? Where the, the shouts of them. Um, send it up. Send it up. Thank you. Yes. That that fear was constantly lurking under the table and you, you had to traffic and control to keep that from happening. And we see you make decisions based on that. At one point, you decide you're not going to call down to recreation, even though some of the kids on the floor are asking, when are we going to go play basketball? Because you'd had a particularly difficult experience um, taking a group of kids on and off the elevator. Correct. Um, And so I'm wondering, I guess, without revealing too much of the story or giving the book away, if you could just talk about that personal reckoning. You came in hoping to do good. To better these kids and at a certain point you had to decide are, <laughs> am i going to keep myself safe and keep these kids safe and and learning to walk that line it is just a a razor sharp line that you're walking all the time between making those decisions to put safety and security first but yet there's still you're still curious about them as people you 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 you're wanting to keep yourself human you because there there were attendants that I saw that did quote seem hardened and calloused they honestly were in the minority i mean most everyone i saw there at some point would try to reach out and to try to make some sort of a positive impact you know in the lives of these kids but, uh, you know, as a rookie, as you said, you very quickly figure out that, uh, number one, I have to survive first. Well, you know, I have to make it from eight to four or from two to ten and not have to have any intervention on the cell block from supervisors or caseworkers. Uh, that is not having my, my unit go up. I mean, that, that, you know, that's the ultimate embarrassment. That's the ultimate failure is if your unit goes up and people have to intervene because you and your coworker couldn't handle it. So you're right. You're always sizing up not only the, the inmates, but you're sizing up your coworker. If you're working, if you're put with a new person and you know, who's going to be the heavy 
or are we both the heavy or are we both not the heavy and someone's going to have to become the heavy uh, um, in the course of these next eight hours and something similar to that happened toward the end of the book uh, up on cell block 5d where I looked at the guy and I thought, okay, hey, we're straight. This is gonna, this is gonna be smooth. And then the way he started interacting with the inmates, it just all went to you know where in a in a quick hurry. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of had that that moment of reckoning. And um, I think it's one of the one of the small victorious moments that Emily Fox Gordon mentions there um, in in her blurb. Um, so, but you're right. You you are dealing in an economy of control. It's both physical and mental, and it's it's using your mind to control their bodies. You're obviously trying to control their minds first, and, you know, and then their bodies. But with two of you, twenty five of them, and no mace, no cuffs, no nothing. It doesn't matter how big and bad the two of you are. If all 25 of them decide <laughs> that you're going down, you're probably going down. It sounds really bleak. And I know that there are moments of redemption, actually, and hope. And, um, and of course, your op-ed, you're asking that children are not being treated like adults and they're, they're less ATs now, right? And that's less automatic transfers. Is that you- right? Yes, yeah, the, the the laws in Illinois have changed uh, since I was there, and and that scene uh, with Christopher uh, in in that essay in the Dallas Morning News was one that I just for the life of me and and with my editor's assistance we just couldn't work it into the narrative arc of the book, and and I so much wanted that in there because I just I couldn't forget him mm-hmm. saying about the mouse, so they can crush their bones down. No Place for Kids is coming out this Friday in the Dallas Morning News. I wonder if you'd share with us the story of Christopher, an inmate from the Adi home, that you write about in that op-ed. Sure, yeah. It was just, uh, it was one night, and I had asked this uh, very, uh, this kid was about my height, but probably, you know, 140 pounds. I mean, he was just this lanky, goofy, cartoonish kind of guy and but very cooperative very cooperative I mean he was truly one of those kids where you never you didn't say it out loud but you wanted to say what are you doing here mm-hmm. you know many of the kids you would take one look at them and you would you know <laughs> your mind would race and you could imagine I mean you know, why they were here your mind could fill in the blanks not with Christopher and uh, so there was one night where he was pulling uh, he was pulling his mattress off of his bed frame and he was jamming it along the the gap between his cell block door and the floor and I asked him what he was doing and he said well we got mice and um I you know I was aware of that I'd seen mice live and dead you know in the facility and 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 I said uh something to the effect of well they're not going to make it I mean you know the door's locked they're not and he said oh no they can crush their bones down and squeeze under and it was just so I mean, here, this was the guy who was, he was 16, and he had one of those automatic charges, you know, carrying drugs for probably older gangbangers, and he may have been strong-armed or intimidated into it. And at that point, 
carrying a certain amount of drugs within a thousand feet of a housing project or a school in Illinois was an automatic transfer to adult criminal court for kids 15 and 16. Thankfully, that has changed. But, you know, those laws are too late for a kid like Christopher. So if he was convicted, he, you know, he could have faced 10, 12, 15 years, you know, in the Illinois prison system. So that was a kid that his story is, was, was heartbreaking. And I just, I haven't forgot him. As you were getting to know the colleagues with whom you worked, you were struck that several of them had been there for as long as they had been, sometimes years, and didn't know several of the inmates' names. Everything is labeled with the acronym or the kids that you mentioned. The ATs were just ATs, and then the cell blocks were letters and numbers. And Jessica and I were talking about uh, the experience of reading the book and how off-putting that was for especially people like us who are interested in story. Mm -hmm. When narrative is the thing, narrative is the thing. It's how we come to know each other. And the system is set up in such a way that that's not part of the process at all. It can't be if you're to keep control. And that's the dehumanizing and denarrating of people in these institutions. And then you're coming in and your job is not so much as to re-narrate, but the, that's what the book is doing, right? I, I hope so. Um, one of, when I was in Chicago for the Printer's Row Lit Fest, um, several, uh, one of the events, or that event, uh, four guys from the jail came, came to my reading. Mm. And so that what was... an experience. It was, it was. And... Uh, uh, a couple of them are, are in the book, and uh, uh, as I walked with the, um, David Jackson of the Chicago Tribune uh, was the one who was doing the Q&A and facilitating the event, and so you report to this restaurant. It's a back room of a restaurant where you go before your event, and then they, they take you to the event venue up the street, and so we were walking north on State Street, and all of a sudden, I see four of the guys from the jail, and on one of them was holding the book, and... Uh, that was that was quite a surreal experience. So you know, for them to speak out for the book there and say, "Hey, these things were this was a few years ago, but we're still dealing with all the same issues," you know, was quite. It was a relief that here was this guy from Texas who came and worked there for a year, and then took off, and then had the gall to write a book about it. And here were these guys, Chicago-born, Chicago-raised, had been there several... One of the guys was retired. He had been there. He worked there from 1977 to 2010. Uh, So the other guys had been there, you know, 25, 30 years. And the fact that they took part of their Saturday afternoon to come out... (laughs) And and listen to me read and ask questions and 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 speak up was it was um, just an incredible experience for me and I and I think it I think it touches on some of of what Fu has just mentioned that here was their story mm-hmm. I mean here is truly an underrepresented voice uh, juvenile jail guards you know making a lower middle class salary yeah. with yeah not 
with only their voice mm -hmm. and, and no recognition from the outside. Only their voice. Not to get too mystical about the whole writing thing, because really it's a lot of work. And I've been writing, I've been working on my novel for 10 years, too. Well, you're in good company. Um, you're in good company because uh, yeah, exactly. uh, Nathan Hill exactly. of the Knicks, he just said he worked for 10 years on the Knicks mm -hmm. and had no idea what he was doing when he started. Uh -huh. He just enjoyed spending time with these people. Anthony Doerr, same uh -huh. thing with All the Light We Cannot See. So you're in very good company. Oh, and um, I want to tell you that I was the TA for Anthony Swafford at UC Davis. While like he was probably writing the first draft of Jarhead, who'd just come back from from the, the Gulf. Interesting. I was, These I was are one things I didn't know about you, Jessica. Yeah, wow. isn't that great? I, was in, I wouldn't have me. known. It was a huge class on the literature of California taught by um, Jack Hicks, who was the head of creative writing, a very colorful character who, yes, did know Raymond Carver and mm. was a drinking buddy of his and looked it. He, so I guess Anthony came to Tony. He, he, I was introduced to him by Tony. And uh, he had come to talk to Jack for something after class. And then I went up to talk to Jack about something. And so Jack said, by the way, Jack said, this is Tony Swafford, and you'll be hearing a lot about him soon. Hmm. And I think I think Jack was one of his, his early readers um, for the for Jarhead. Sound interesting. Interesting. Yeah, I, I had a class with him at the Tin House Writing Conference tw 2006. And he he was great. He was great. And he, uh, yeah, he, yeah, he when he, a lot of presents. I think he, he was actually older than me. I, it was, I remember being like, oh, I wish, I wish I was older at this point of time. <laughs> I feel very, hi, I'm the TA and I should have some kind of a, I'm grading you, but yet you had this incredible experience and, and you're also older than me. Yeah, he, he liked the prologue of Up In Here because, you know, you workshop the first, you, you had 20 pages to workshop. And so I did, oh, so I did uh, just the opening 20 pages, which is the prologue and, and I think all of chapter one and maybe some of chapter two. And, and he, in the individual consultation, he went out of his way to say, oh, the prologue is great. That's that was great. encouraging. Wow, Because yeah, I, nice. you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was. I had just had the the first full draft for about a year and a half, and was still just in the in the weeds with it. And so for him to to, to at least know mm -hmm. that the opening page and a half was working, <laughs> that that was encouraging. And it, I do love. I'd never heard that before. That his his goal was to turn the pen on himself, and that that becomes your rallying cry as well. And. And you do, and, and that's mm -hmm. what works. It's yeah, and I think it's related to the the, the, uh, the previous comment about writing to discover, mm -hmm. is that yeah, you know, when you're turning the pen on yourself, uh, it's you're right. not just confessing, but yeah, you're examining, you're examining yourself, you're holding yourself up to, you know, up to the light. Hey, Mark, we've reached the end of the podcast, but before we go, we've got a series of questions we'd like to ask you. It's in the spirit of Marcel Proust. He had a, a series of questions that Bernard Pivot later perfected, 
and we've changed them up a bit because this is a podcast about writers, for writers, and by writers. If I did a search and find in your Word docs on your laptop, what fancy word would I find you use or overuse? Subterfuge. (laughs) What word do you hate to hear misused and or mispronounced? I think the word like is overused at times. You might have come to the wrong podcast. (laughs) (laughs) We were just discussing how we're, I'm I'm basically a valley girl, even though I'm not, I have no real connection to California. (laughs) <laughs> I don't have any real pet peeves on mispronunciation. Um, I guess I went to grad school uh, too long, and to think, and and I've been convinced that everyone owns their own language, and that we shouldn't uh, uh, tell each other how to pronounce words. <laughs> yes, very What's the title of the word doc last opened on your desktop? February's blues. If you weren't a writer, you'd be a. Center fielder for the Houston Astros or the Texas Rangers. Book that's on your coffee table. Elsewhere by Richard Russo. Book that's on your nightstand. Uh, The South Side uh, by Natalie Moore. Book that's on the back of your toilet. (laughs) That that assumes Mark does toilet reading. Not, not all of us. <laughs> not everyone else. <laughs> Next to the bathtub. In the bathroom. Okay, okay. So how about the re- uh, rereading uh, William Faulkner's Absalom, Absalom? In the bathroom. Oh my gosh. Maybe my favorite book ever. Favorite place to read. At home, it's my not on the toilet. Obviously. Red leather chair uh, next to the end table that my very talented brother built in Houston. It's uh, Catalina Coffee on Washington Avenue. The writer you would most like to have dessert with? Uh, living, it would be uh, Edward P. Jones. The writer you most like to have sex with? I plead the fifth. (laughs) (laughs) The writer you most like to have a beer with? Marlon James. What Shakespearean play do you think your book is a derivative of? I'm a a little underread on Shakespeare, uh, even more so than I'm willing to admit, but maybe Hamlet in that just that there's just, you know, someone who is doesn't know as much as they think they know maybe mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that's the one i i would have guessed it all goes back to hamlet though because identity right exactly to be yeah. or not to be i mean that's that's probably mm-hmm. the one yeah and and, <laughs> all, and oh shame where is thy blush there was many times where i i felt <laughs> shamed uh for a number of reasons mm-hmm. but but kind of you know embarrassed mm-hmm. that I thought it was going to be this way, and it's not this way, and I'm wanting to quit after one week. And but yet, at 26, mm-hmm. the male ego will not let you quit. And and you, know, you moved <laughs> three states to take this new job, and then you quit after a week. Mm-hmm. You know what kind of 
what kind of softy are you? Mm -hmm. And so I couldn't. So it was, I had to man up. I had to gut it out. And so it became this crazy negotiation with myself. Like how many months Mm -hmm. do I have to do to still, to save face? And then eventually I decided on a year. Yeah. That I could save face and say, well, it just, you know, I, I did it a year and it just wasn't for me. It, it, it really didn't work out. That was the arbitrary number. That was the arbitrary. Somehow I came up with a year. Your ego could emerge from that. Exactly. Time <laughs> intact. Yes. And, and, you know, looking back on it now, um, had I, had I bailed like, you know, like, like my, my weaker self wanted to initially, um, I would have, you know, missed out on so many incredible relationships with my coworkers and, and, and certain, certain of the inmates right. for sure. Uh, but when you're in the, when you're in the fire of it, you're, at least I was wanting to take the path of least resistance. Mm-hmm. Well, Mark Dostert, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was a pleasure having you. Thank you so much for having me. Effing Shakespeare is brought to you by Bloomsday Writing and Publishing. Write to be read. Find out more about partner publishing and cooperative writing at bloomsdaywriting.com. And by our friends at Houston Creative Space. Photography, video, recording, graphic design, and fine art. Find all things creative at Houston Creative Space. Production assistance and audio editing by Doug Lou. Our social media and marketing maven is Paula Lou, and our chief audio, visual, graphic, and everything else engineer is Fulu, who constantly reminds us the perfect is the enemy of the good and who loves us despite the fact that we consistently ignore him at our own peril. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Bloomsday Writer. Show us some love, subscribe to our show, and leave a review on iTunes. That was better, right? Yeah, a lot better. I can swim. There you go. That's my parenting. <laughs> okay, so this is like a speed dating for writers. So it'll be. Wait, my doc. My doc doesn't have that on it. Is that weird? Hi. Yes. Will you just do it? I'm no, sorry, because I don't have it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we saw each other all day at school, and then she called you at six. Little did I know that we'd be sitting here hosting a long-distance podcast. I think we're alone now. It doesn't seem to be anyone around. I think we're alone now. The beating of our hearts is the only sound.